Welcome to Keeping Curious, the podcast that explores creative living through conversations with artists, designers and anyone in between. So whether you're just starting out, feeling stuck or a little lonely in the studio, I'm here to keep you company and keep you curious. So today I'm joined with Dean Kelland, who used to be my next door neighbour. And we're just sat having a cuppa. Um, So three years ago when we spoke before, you were a lecturer Mm -hmm. and you'd had a show at the Icon. Mm-hmm. and we'd gone through some of your sketchbooks and things. So what's happened in since I moved out? <laughs> um, well, I think the show uh, at that point, was pro- it was probably the third one I'd done with ah. ICAR, um, and it was a commission for uh, international um, video um, exhibition, which, which was really good, and they were shown in lots of different places... Um, car parks and uh, really kind of interesting sites and that was quite a challenge mine was shown in the old back-to-backs oh yeah so that was quite good and that was quite a challenge because um, one thing that's kind of really I think interesting with galleries is that there's kind of a perception I think that they all work the same way Mm -hmm. and you can't get near them yeah, I think there's definitely a feel of that. And that's certainly true to some extent in my experience. But um, the icon don't work the same way as any other gallery I've kind of been involved with. Um, and actually, I went for a, a cup of tea um, uh, with with the director. And when I arrived, there were a few other people there. Um, and he just said, well, we're doing this. Uh, about town video exhibition uh, video um, show and um, over to you you can pitch your commission for us so I was kind of sitting there thinking oh because I I really did come for a cup of tea (laughs) and I didn't realise I'd be pitching something Um, and it really was kind of that relaxed and a I always carry sketchbooks with me, so it was a case of kind of just opening the sketchbook and going. Maybe we could do this. That one, yeah. that <laughs> idea there, um, and and they all went for it. Um, but I had about three weeks to do it. I've never worked like wow. that before. I've always kind of um, spent a reasonable amount of time kind of building the work, and this felt a little bit. Of a, of a challenge because of that because of the way I'd worked before um, but I guess as we were saying um, b- before we started recording that, that idea of risk is quite an important mm. one would um, you do it again if you had three weeks? yeah I would you can do it yeah I mean and interestingly that's that kind of led me to to a couple of kind of key things really the work I did for that commission um, was a brand new piece of work um, but it came off the back of the stuff that I'd done previously. And that's why you were able to kind of show the sketchbook and go, something around this, but you'll make something new. Yeah. And I was really pleased with the work. I genuinely was, and I kind of stand by it. Um, and I'm kind of quite surprised that actually I did that in three weeks and I've spent six years doing the previous work. Yeah. And, and that's quite interesting. And I, I kind of the conclusions I, 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 I guess I came to were you've found a way of doing this and 
that means you need to stop or you need to do something different rather than that idea of kind of mastery and I know what I'm doing so I should carry on you were like no I know what I do it's a yeah, I, I kind of felt. I, I kind of felt it was too safe. Yeah. I kind of felt I did that too easily, and that means I could probably do it again and again and again. And yes. what value is there in that? So, so it, it taught me quite a lot actually. And I, I kind of thought, okay, um, I need to step into deeper water then for the next piece and not feel so comfortable. And, mm. So that piece was a video piece? It was, yeah. Um, so I guess uh, we haven't talked about the work that I make. So I... Um, how far do you want me to go back? All of it. <laughs> well, I want to start right at, right at the beginning. Okay. Uh, well, uh, so I, I grew up in um, Great Bar uh, in Birmingham. And... Uh, That is um, somewhere that I, I still go back and I visit people I know and I, I kind of like being from there um, but it's not the kind of place you um, openly explore art as a possible Yeah, as a career <laughs> as option. As a career <laughs> option, that's not what you do. Um, and so... So was it on the cards back in the early days was it kind of one of those things you'd like to do but you probably should come up with something a bit more sensible because that's what everyone else was doing I think um, kind of at school I did really badly at school um, and I I only there's that old joke isn't there you know, painting computers I only did uh, well in art and maths surprisingly I do well in maths <laughs> um, and, I, and I had a really kind of key decision then when I hadn't done very well it was right. Do I go to through the route of right? You need to grow up and get a job, or do I actually kind of take this as a kick up the backside? Because I was lazy at school and I didn't do the things I should have done, and paid for it. Um, and I actually thought, oh no, I kind of want to go back and do something. Um, and so I, I did. I, I retook my exams and, and did okay, and found myself kind of supplementing lots of things with kind of I did textiles GCE, I did a GCSE, I did a photography GCSE, I kind of just... You made did, your numbers up by yeah, doing creative. Creative things that I was able to kind of do. Um, and then I kind of planned uh, that um, that was where I was going to go, art was kind of the thing that I wanted to do, but I kind of guess there was still a little bit hanging around perhaps in my family who kind of felt well actually how are you gonna get a job get a proper job doing mm-hmm. this but at the same time they were you know still very supportive well I suppose they must have been quite pleased when you kind of knuckled down and said I'm gonna do tests again and yeah even though they're creative yeah I want to take it seriously and I yeah, and so I would you know my mum my supported me going to uh, college to do my foundation at um, Warsaw and um, I had a great year there interrupted by, by about a meningitis but okay. kind of that just happened went and I got back on track yeah. and was able to so do it so were you okay. about 18, 19 at this point yeah, yeah. Um, and I was still kind of flailing around in terms of 
exactly what it is I wanted to do, and I think that's common. I think yeah, I you know. Still don't know what I want to do. <laughs> um, and and the thing I think with creative people as well is you can be shown something new, and suddenly think, yeah, that's it. That's so, my life. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as I, as soon as I went in into the printmaking area, it was like, oh, that's it. Printmaking's for me, and I just that's all I did. And then I went into the dark room and I'm oh, right, no, photography, that's amazing, I'll do that. It's probably and doing it, a multidisciplinary course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, I spent a year doing that. Um, the tutor who uh, was in charge of photography was a really kind of interesting character. And I think that kind of swung it. It helps, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Who you tutors are really does change what you end up with. Yeah. And so I ended up doing photography, um, and I went to um, Wolverhampton University to do photography, and spent three years there very angry. Um, <laughs> photography was in this weird place where it had kind of been acknowledged as quite a serious art form, having spent a long time of being sneered at, um, but was kind of coming out of that, and it was being sneered at again. And I was kind of really quite kind of angry about that. <laughs> and there was definitely the kind of two routes with photography, so you could go for a commercial route, um, or you could do something that was kind of fine art. And I was definitely in the fine art camp, and I would fight vehemently vehemently for photography to be acknowledged which now seems like such a kind of outdated argument that's long gone but when I was kind of studying it was still hanging around and there was still staff who would kind of you know not kind of see why you were doing the things that you were doing with photography which you know isn't isn't always the case in every institution and all those kind of things but it's kind of what I experienced at the time. So when you were doing your photography degree was your specialism in kind of darkroom photography or were you doing digital techniques? <laughs> yeah I studied long enough ago that digital was very much in its infancy right. and really expensive. Well, it wasn't our university anyway yeah. <laughs> um, so I just Darkroom was yeah. still the established way of working, and that was kind of where I was was kind of interested. I guess though that that's where um, this kind of work or the germs of this work start start to develop because I got for photography. If you were fine art photography, it was heavily theorised. Yeah. And you would be reading psych oh, psychoanalysis, yeah. Bart Sontag, all that kind of stuff. And I went with it. I thought, oh, yeah, that's me. I'll read those things. I'll, I'll fight for photography as a, as a fine art practice. Um, and I, I kind of made, and I always chuckle when I say this, I made work that I was incredibly serious about at the time, um, but I find a little bit embarrassing now, but but I think a lot of people would say those kind of things. But I, I was really interested in rural landscape, okay, and um, particularly the kind of deconstruction of it photographically. Is that because of the tradition of landscape painting as an established art form, and yeah. you were kind of trying to represent it? Yeah, and I did a lot of reading about the history of the rural landscape, particularly in painting and 
Um, so I, I kind of I, I built I built the the practice um, reasonably well, um, and I made these quite abstract um, images, um, which would just be a kind of strip of uh, blue and a strip of green in the dark room I would kind of so there were some times when I didn't even point a camera at the world yeah. I just used the, the techniques the techniques that I had um, and I, I was kind of quite spurred on because I did a couple of shows around that time with that work and it seemed to rub people up the wrong way and that really spurred me on and I, I remember uh, there was a guy who really took exception to it was just saying this is neither photography nor fine art so it is not landscape it is just meandering nonsense. And I, and I was kind of really spurred on by that. And I was kind of saying to you... You're wrong. Well, no, I, I said, your responses are perfect. Yeah. They're exactly where this work is. It's about kind of questioning all of those things that, that you're so angry about. But, he, 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 <laughs> you know, you have those conversations. And, yeah. But I kind of left university thinking, like, that's me. You know, I very serious about the rural landscape and the representation of it and I can really work with this um, and I kind of the reason I chuckle when I talk about that is because I was, I was kind of a kid from Great Bar yeah. I had no experience of the rural landscape which in, in one way is quite kind of interesting I guess but so my kind of experience of, of the rural landscape was this kind of idealised you know untouchable thing yeah which is quite interesting but then for me to be making work about that just seems a bit odd now when I kind of look back and so I, I kind of left and was <laughs> thinking yeah I make landscapes I I'm very serious about the representation of the land and um, yeah and I didn't really manage too well probably for the next three or four years so I, I worked in a factory, I worked in insurance. Was this because you were super serious about doing the photography and photography couldn't bend to anything else? Yeah. It had to be purist, so I'll fund it however way I can. Yeah, and I also, obviously then you have kind of people saying to you, oh, you've got a degree in photography but you won't do a wedding. Yeah. Because uh, no, I don't know how to and it's not my... I wouldn't under, you know, that's not what I do yeah. you know um, so yeah I was still kind of quite, quite angry about all those kind of things um, but it, the, there was a point then when you kind of think to yourself actually this, this isn't really happening and I need to kind of think about my practice actually mm. and kind of think about where's it going and what's it doing but were you still working on your artwork at that time on and off okay yeah. yeah so there are times you know when I was working a lot at the factory and the last thing I would do is get home and think oh, I'm gonna yeah you know, go make some some work now but the intention and the seriousness was still there um and I did I did have the odd exhibition and I did still do things but it it, it was becoming kind of um more distant actually because that's the thing that I found the hardest after leaving uni where you build up your entire identity around these kind of things and this is what I do 
and then you enter the working world and you're exactly right that at the end of the day you don't want to be doing it but then as soon as you lose that then you just become the worker and you're not the artist yeah. and then you go through this kind of existential crisis in your mid-twenties and go well if I'm not that and I'm what am I actually doing yeah, yeah and, I, and from that that crisis I kind of um, kind of devised a different way in I suppose so I always kind of had the idea that I would be able to teach <laughs> and back then um, you didn't have to have a teaching qualification to get in you had to get one once you were in but you know you could show willing and you yeah. might get through the door um, and I started doing um, Saturday classes and then I did a couple of evenings and so I was kind of working I was in, in insurance at the time so I was working in insurance and then I'd be kind of doing maybe an evening class at night and then I'd do the weekend as well is that as a photography tutor or anything um, anything that... it was photography at that point um but then I was asked to teach a week at a college, so to teach a week, teach a day a week at a college um, on, a, on a fine art course. Um, and once I'd kind of been teaching there for, I think it was about three months I did, um, they kept saying to me, oh, you're going to be very busy in September. And I was kind of going, right, okay, will I? Because I'll need to give up my insurance yeah. job um, well we don't know we've got to wait for the numbers and yeah okay I could be free if there's a job <laughs> yeah. um, and in the end I kind of just took the risk and kind of handed in my notice and within as soon as September started within the first week I was kind of doing more than full time which was great and kind of the reason I'd, I'd wanted to go into teaching was because I kind of thought to myself you'll be dealing with the subject again on, a, on a, a daily basis and you'll also have access to facilities and so it's a good idea to kind of that's a way to get back into things and, 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 and that's what happened um, things moved really really quickly in, the, in terms of the teaching um, and I ended up I think I was course leader within another month or so. So oh I'd gone God. from kind of yeah. <laughs> so I'd gone from um, being in insurance, doing a day, the odd evening, and the weekends, um, to kind of running a full time program in a really short space of time. And I had a lot of learning to do, yeah. and a lot of things to kind of get to grips with, uh, which was fine. But I was kind of called into um, my head of school's office and she said right you've got to get your teaching qualification now and I was still kind of holding on to this ideal that well I'm an artist first yeah and then I'm an educator and so I said no I want to do an MA and she was going no <laughs> teaching qualification and I was going no I'm doing my MA um, and so we kind of struck a deal where she said if you do your teaching qualification first I'll fund your MA um, and so that's that's what happened um, and the MA was kind of the transformative period for me really um, I was lucky to study under um, a guy called Ian Brown not the lead singer of the Stone Roses I was wondering um, <laughs> which is what he has to say every time he introduces himself but um, and Ian was a really 
good person to run an MA course because he was um, a, a curator as well as a practitioner. Um, he was probably two years older than me, so we had a lot of common ground. Um, and this was at Staffs Uni. And what I found was, because I was working full time, is that I was kind of, I was felt slightly detached from the core group of MA students. Um, but Ian was really kind of good at making sure that that wasn't the case. Mm. He was really good at in, including people who were maybe having to Deep in and out. Yeah, navigate a different kind of approach. In it. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that he did um, to begin with is he kind of said, you know, I want everybody to turn up in the first week with a piece of work that they've exhibited that they can talk about. So I kind of fell back on my abstract landscapes because I thought, right, well, I can talk a lot about these now. Um, so I presented them. They went down okay. But they'd already at this point started to grind on you a little bit. Yeah. But it's just of... exhibited artwork. Yeah, I can talk about it. And... It's not really where I am now, but this is what I've done. Yeah. Um, and the whole group did that the whole group kind of stood up and went well you know this is what I've done this is what I've done um, and Ian just turned around at the end of those presentations and said okay everything you've just shown us goes in the bin and you start again Yeah. and there are no pre-existing methods rules do you think you needed to hear that? yeah and I was delighted to hear mm. it actually and it really gave me a kind of boost because I just thought right yeah you are starting again now and that's really good because mm, I had a similar experience and a similar they didn't say it in those words um, but I find that incredibly hard but I think that's because I'd done it directly after my BA yeah. so it's kind of like I've worked for three years to get something I'm really proud of and then you're saying it means nothing yeah I, I totally know where you're coming from because by this time I think I'd had uh, four, maybe five years between yeah. my BA and my MA whereas there were a lot of people who'd gone straight, like you say, mm. from the BA and what was interesting about those guys is um, they really struggled mm. for exactly the reasons you're saying whereas I think I was kind of ready yeah, to go to hear that, to yeah. kind of have that you're almost a new to, person. Yeah, almost to say thank you. Yeah. I can get I can put that in the bin now yeah. and just move on. Um and yeah, I still floundered around. So I did it part time, so I did it for two years. Um Was it a photography MA? No. Fine art. Fine art, which was really important because I I never saw myself as a photographer. I still never have seen myself as a photographer. And so I had a determination that I would do a fine art MA because by that stage photography was not that important to mm. me and I wanted to be able to say I kind of felt like um, I wasn't allowed to call myself an artist because my BA was in photography Yeah, and I kind of felt that's what I'm, I need to be able to say. But something grated on you to say I'm a photographer. Yeah, yeah. Because um, then you get asked to do a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I really floundered around. And if I 
thought that the work I made in my BA is slightly embarrassing now. The stuff I did on my MA is just just not anywhere where I would kind of yep know that feeling <laughs> um, but and I, and I say this now to, to students I have myself and it is difficult because when you're in the middle of it particularly um, but the biggest thing about the MA was the experience and I know that sounds really X factor the journey <laughs> and all that but it really is the things I learned on my MA are all disconnected from the work I made. Yeah. What I was able to do on my MA was find an identity and find things that I was interested in and find methods and ways of working. And I suppose there was an element of being given permission to fail, to try something, to try film, to try performance, to try this. And it doesn't matter if you fall flat on your face because yeah. you're creating something new. Absolutely. And the other thing Ian did, which was really good, which hurt a lot of us at the time, but it was really good, he would just arrange exhibitions. Yeah. And so you'd walk in and he'd go, oh, by the way, next week uh, I've got you a show in London. Oh, God. Uh, make sure you've got some work for it. And you'd just be like, what? Yeah. And he was really good at that. And then... It, it, we almost became ourselves really good at responding. We could yeah. kind of predict there's going to be one coming up, and we'd start. And then he he'd kind of mix it up by saying, "Right, okay, uh, I've got all your names in a hat here. Uh, you have to come and pick a name out of a hat. Uh, whoever you pick out, you're now doing a collaborative piece. Yeah. Uh, by the way, it's been shown in two weeks' time, and you should just be like, what? <laughs> um, but those are the things that that you know taught me so much the work I made was poor um, for lots of reasons but it it kind of the the best conversation I had um, was when I'd finished and I, I saw Ian at a train station about six weeks ago and I got to thank him and Aww. say that conversation um, and he was going oh, I'm sure it wasn't that important and I was going no actually it really really was um, we we were just having a, a couple like this and um, at the, after the, the course and um, we just started talking about an episode of The Office the sitcom and uh, I kind of just recalled some of the key moments in this episode and the conversation kind of continued and then I started saying oh you know you should watch this sitcom do you remember this one in the 80s it got this person in it and actually there's one in the 70s that's even better at doing this and after about a kind of half an hour of me just kind of pouring all this stuff out to him he just said I didn't realise you knew so much about sitcoms and I said well just watch them and it's kind of lodged in my head and he went uh, I wish we'd have had this conversation at the beginning of the course he said because mm-hmm. I'd have got you making work about comedy and I just kind of went oh right okay and it just really stuck with me um, and I think it was so important because up until that point even up until that stage where I've been doing it for quite a long time 
what that conversation did was open up the idea that um, the work that I produce doesn't have to be kind of decoupled from mm. my life. experiences and, and my life and the things around me and and it's only at that point that I, my eyes were kind of open to that and I thought yeah actually what I do is kind of it's like putting on a different set of clothes I'm going to be an artist now mm. so I, I will think about these things and I will do these things and that's how I work and it, it kind of just opened my eyes up to the fact that you know actually the clothes you're wearing are fine mm. you know and and so it was a really important moment and I think it's also really interesting with people that they don't actually realise their own passions because you would never have really thought I'm passionate about sitcoms no and it it really I mean that's kind of where the last six seven years worth of work have come from and um it, it, it all stems from that, that moment where I thought, oh, actually, yeah. Let's dig a bit deeper. Yeah. And once I started digging, it just opened up a whole load of stuff that I kind of thought, yeah, I could see where Ian was coming from with it. Um, and I, I just thought to myself, okay, well, the next time I make some work, I'm going to see where this might take me. And... Um, I, I got a, I, I got a university post in Chester, and then I got one at Wolverhampton, um, and uh, the opportunity to do a PhD came up, and I kind of thought to myself, you need to take a risk again, and you need to do something that might not come off, and might kind of knock you a bit but you've got to do it anyway and so I only applied to two places and that was Goldsmiths and Central St Martins as you do and it was really interesting the whole process because I sent the two um, proposals off and they were related to comedy and so I kind of put in this proposal that I didn't know what I was going to make yet but I knew that it would touch upon the history of British comedy and it would touch upon the representation of men mm. in, in these comedies. And um, Goldsmith got back to me quite quickly and um, the course leader there, uh, and, and you know I don't know his name, but the guy uh, from research there, he just said, I don't, I don't get it, really sorry. He said, I don't get your proposal. And I said, well, can we talk about it? And he said, yeah. He said, well, what's comedy got to do with anything? Don't get it. So I, I kind of talked to him a bit about it, and he said, well, uh, can, you, can you just do the proposal again? And he said, just try and make it clearer as to what comedy's got to do with your artwork. And I was kind of a bit disappointed, because I kind of thought, that's, that's not, it's not about what's comedy got to do with my artwork. It's my experience of comedy, and my experiences watching these characters is the work that's the point I'm trying mm. to make all the work comes from there and he was like um, he, I ended up writing it five times because each time I sent it to him he would go hmm not sure 
can you just rewrite this section? And then he finally, after the fifth one, he finally emailed me and just said, sorry, I can't help you. This is, I don't get any of this mm. still. And so I was kind of like, oh, God, that's disappointing. So I, think I wrote him an e- email, just quite an impassioned email, so, you know, about the fact that surely if, if I know exactly what it is I'm going to do, then what's the point of me doing it? And the whole idea with the PhD is that I will find ways of working with this. And so I sent that off to him. Almost at the same time, St Martin's got in touch with me based on the first proposal (laughs) and went, can we interview you? And I was like, oh, right, okay. I'd almost forgotten that I'd sent it to St Martin's. Um, And I went to St Martin's and... um, was immediately struck with a bout of imposter syndrome so Mm. I kind of couldn't see myself as anybody other than this kid from Great Bar who shouldn't be involved with arts and certainly shouldn't be walking into St Martin's Um, and I kind of took a deep breath and I remember being outside and thinking you're going to get to have a look around and you never get that chance so go for it just just go in have a look round um so I went in for the interview and I'd one of the things that they specified actually that Goldsmiths didn't is they like you to suggest who could be um good supervisors on their staff team so part of the form I'd had to fill in and um Susan Trangmar who's um uh, practitioner, she does a lot with projection work and she she does uh, lots with installation she'd been somebody that I researched on my BA and just really kind of loved her work and I saw a show that she'd done in um, York the Impressions Gallery in York and was just kind of knocked out by it and I, I saw her name on the staff list and just thought Susan that would be good um, what I didn't know is I didn't think she'd be in the room for the interview <laughs> so of course I walk in wide eyed this is St Martin's and then uh, oh that's but you're here <laughs> that's you then there <laughs> like, you know um, and she immediately made me feel at ease because I think the first question asked me about the proposal, I fumbled around in my bag to get a sketchbook out and she went, oh, sketchbook. She said, can I have a look? I love sketchbooks. And the whole interview was based on the sketchbook there. Um, and, I, you know, I'd, I'd kind of done okay, I thought, but I thought like I probably came across as a very nervous brummy, basically, mm-hmm. and kind of thought to myself, well, you met Susan Trangmar. You've had a look around St Martin's, you should be really happy with that. You put yourself out <laughs> you in your know. comfort zone and put um, that. Yeah, and I I walked out thinking, you know, they said, we'll let you know, we'll we'll have to have a chat and we'll let you know how things are going and all this kind of thing. And we, you know, we might not be able to get your supervisor or we've got to look around for supervisors that would be interested. Um, and, and Susan's going, you know, I do supervise a lot, so it, it's whether I... I'd be available so I kind of took from that it was a bit of a no thanks yeah no thanks um and I got to the steps and my phone rang and um 
Dad just said, uh, Susan's really keen to supervise you. Can you, you know, we'd really like you to, to come and do it here. And uh, yeah, I don't think my, te- my, my feet touched the ground <laughs> when I got home. But, but I did spend the first year um, kind of just in a bit of a weird place because one of the things that Susan did, which again was great for PhD students, is all practice-based students, she got them to meet regularly and we'd do crits. Mm. And I think that was really crucial because I think doing doing the PhD can be a really kind of lonely, insular experience where you've only got your supervisor to talk to. And so for her to kind of say, right, every two weeks... Create a network. You're going to show, you know, we're going to have groups, we're going to show on rotation, you're going to get feedback. And it, and it felt... It felt like an art school should yeah. feel, you know, it felt like the right way to be doing it. Um, but after the first couple of weeks, everyone seemed to be showing um, abstract films. Okay. And after I'd seen about the 10th abstract film, I was kind of thinking, oh, there's a house style here, isn't there? And I don't really <laughs> fit into this. Um, so it kind of fed that imposter syndrome that I'd been kind of developing. I always walked into the building with my ID card held out. I am like, supposed yeah, to be here. Exactly, yeah. And it, the security guard stopped me after, uh, and just went, I've seen you enough now, you don't yeah. have to just hold it up all the time. And I was like, okay, fine, fair enough. Um, but around that time, I'd kind of made some decisions about where the work was going and um, it just didn't seem to fit. It's hard when you're in those crit situations and everyone seems to be on the same page and you're on a completely different yeah. one and you're there going, "Yeah, I'm in the wrong room. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's how I felt, yeah. I What I'd started to do was kind of think about key uh, comedy figures and comedy characters that um, I would I would look at research yeah. in terms of practice and make work about, um, and I kind of identified Tony Hancock for a, a kind of geographical as well as historical reason. Um, Harold Steptoe as for kind of personal reasons, and um, the likely lads were the, the, the three kind of case studies that I wanted to look at. And that was nice because it was 50s, 60s, 70s, so there was a way of kind of seeing um, and how they kind of fed into each other. But I still hadn't really worked out. I didn't know whether it was going to be printmaking, text yeah. installations. I just hadn't really worked it out. Um, so I was kind of turning up to these crits with bits and bobs of ideas about dead comedians, really. <laughs> and you could see people kind of thinking, oh, well, what have we got here, you know? Um, and then I, I had a moment in the studio that, that changed everything for a number of reasons, but I... I was kind of still struggling, really. I was kind of sitting there thinking, I've got to work out a way of doing this. I had a tutorial the 
the following week where I was meant to present some work and I was just kind of thinking I'm I'm, I'm a bit bit stuck here I'd done, I'd done some work around Hancock but then I thought to myself I don't have to do it in order and I, I'd always Harold Steptoe had always been the one that I kind of attached myself to and my personal history uh, with him had, had kind of come up a few times um, and so I thought well maybe I'll do something on Harold Steptoe while I'm stuck and I just couldn't work out what I was doing and I, I'd um, I just decided that I'd set up a video camera because I thought I could use the video camera as a sketchbook and I thought well actually just change the way you're working so rather than kind of the, the, the traditional physical sketchbooks that you've got there actually just try and turn the video camera into a sketchbook so I would kind of sit there and just kind of talk into the camera and say well, I've got these ideas I want to kind of think about this moment and this moment and after spending an hour or so doing that I just kind of thought well actually while I'm sitting in front of the camera I might as well do something and um, I had this idea to repeat his catchphrase um, you dirty old man um, and the one the, one of the initial ideas I had was that the, the these characters are trapped in a cycle of failure and that the failure feeds the laughter mm. and that that's quite a cruel thing it kind of feeds the ego so then they have to fail on purpose to get the, the ego and... and I was kind of quite interested in that so I just thought to myself I wonder what would happen if I just sit here in front of the camera doing a bad impression of him like failing to get the voice right yeah um, so I kind of stuck the I had a I had loads of radio recordings and I kind of did a quick cut and paste of just him doing the the uh, catchphrase and I just played that repetitively in the studio and kind of just sat there kind of trying to do this thing and, and not do it very well and I took that to the tutorial um, but didn't show it to the end so I kind of sat there and I said okay um, so I'm working with these ideas and I'm really good with all that I'm going great so you're really starting to focus in on what it is you want to do um, but then they said have you done any work <laughs> and I kind of said well hmm, there is this and I, I kind of pressed play I mean the video itself is probably about two and a half minutes three minutes long um, and they just sat there in silence and I thought isn't going very well and um, then one of my supervisors I looked at her and she had tears in her eyes and she just went that's one of the hardest things I've ever had to watch and she said that is the work right there and I was going okay I said I haven't <laughs> really planned any of this yeah uh, it was just a yeah. improv and I kind of said you know performance art was never what I was setting out to do and it was just kind of overwhelmingly positive that evening I had to then show it to the group and I was spurred on a bit 
by the response I'd got from my supervisors, but I kind of just repeated the thing. I just kind of talked about what I was interested in. Um, and then I showed the film and there was just complete silence. And I, I thought, oh, okay. Um, and I rambled on a bit to try and fill the space and there was still silence and I just kind of thought, okay, we'll call it a day there then. And um, one person just put their hands up and said, uh, your work is not about comedy, it's about horror. And oh, that okay. is one of the most moving things I've ever had to watch. Mm. So I kind of thought, right, well, that's twice in one day. I'm on to something. So that, that could be good. That could be really good. Um, so I kind of accidentally became a performance yeah. artist because it was never an intention. And was it ever a, an influence? Was it ever, was it literally, the sketchbook's not working for me at the moment, I'll try something else? It was that, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd, I'd kind of, I mean, one of the things that I kind of visited at this point as well was I got my first television in my room when I was six years old. Uh, black and white, old black and white television. And I watched sitcoms mm. over and over again. Uh, particularly Steptoe and Son. It just had a, a thing for me. Mm. I think there's a lot... It is a really interesting topic about this kind of formation of masculinity via watching those things and the impact yeah. those things have on yeah. a young um, boy watching sitcoms. Yeah. And I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have laughed at any of it because mm. I wouldn't have understood a lot of what was going on. I mean, I just aligned myself to Harold I hated his dad and I just thought there's got to be a happy ending to this mm. and of course there isn't which is what I could kind of revisit later on in the work but it kind of st stemmed from that really about me kind of thinking well you know I'll, I'll go back to that then mm. you know, and I'll see see what happens around that time I got a meeting at the Icon, um, which I'd done a really cheeky thing. I'd phoned the desk and I'd said, oh, I'd got the director's name and I said, oh, I was meant to send him a load of stuff. I've lost, I've lost his email address. You wouldn't mind, would you? And don't tell him because it's really embarrassing. And they're lovely people at the Icon. So, of course, the person on the desk just went, oh, don't worry, of course, no problem. Yeah. So I was given his email address. So emailed him. Uh, and just, Never met him. No, just knew his name. Just got his name off the website. And I, and I just I just basically put, I was born in Birmingham. I'm making work about comedy. Doing my PhD at Central St Martins. Susan Trangmar was one of my supervisors. Yeah. That was it. And he got back to me and said, right, can you come in for a meeting? And up until that point, any gallery of that size I had not got anywhere near yeah I hadn't uh, you know the nearest well, I've got was visiting it yeah you know. there's no obvious way into any of those no. established galleries no like it is those kind of chance meetings and when you hear the success stories of certain people and obviously I remember like learning about Damon Hurst driving Saatchi there in his own car yeah, yeah. it kind of feels like you have to be that kind of entrepreneur otherwise it will not happen yeah and I, so I, again, I went along to, to the Icon, um, I put together, um, 
a, a kind of digital portfolio, which was based on my MA work. Right. <laughs> because I just thought, I'm, in, I'm so in the early stages of this. Um, so I talked to you. I mean, the first thing he said to me was, I bet you're wondering how you've managed to get this meeting. <laughs> and he said, uh, I don't. I don't meet artists that haven't got any profile. And he said, so you must be wondering. And, and I kind of said, well, you know, I, I guess so. And he said, well, you were born and raised in Birmingham. He said, we don't support local artists as well as we should. Mm-hmm. And he said, so that kind of piqued my interest. He said, the second thing... Central St Martins, how on earth did you manage that? <laughs> and I, and I, I just said, well, I applied <laughs> and they let me in, you know. And then he said, and Susan Trangmarsh is great and she's your supervisor. So I kind of thought, well, the email worked, didn't it? Yeah. The, the three things I included are the three things that he kind of picked up on. Um, so I talked him through the portfolio and, I mean, he's a lovely guy um, and he was very kind but clearly disinterested mm. and was kind of just sitting there thinking right, this is why I don't need to yeah this is why <laughs> yeah um, and then he said okay so is this what you're working on at St Martin's I, I said no and it was a final roll of the dice because I was just like well it's gone yeah so you know so I said well yeah my, my latest work is I've kind of got this video and he said, okay, show me that then. And I showed it him and he just went, wow, that's a thunderbolt. <laughs> he went, I'm showing that. Wow. And I, I was like, what, really? And he just went, that is a thunderbolt. And he said, I can tell you now, everything else, not interested. That, <laughs> that video. And he just went, I want it. Yeah. And, and so I was kind of sitting there thinking, Right, okay, something is happening with this video yeah. <laughs> that I'm not quite aware of yeah. yet because I haven't had time to even yeah. think about it. Um, so, and he did, he was true to his word. He contacted me a few weeks later and he said, Keep coming, we need to fit you in the program. And, and it was great. Um, and really good kind of timing because it gave me huge confidence in the work. Mm. And it kind of became a method then. I was able to say, right, okay, so part of this work is about me um, as somebody who's been shaped mm. by these these characters. And so I have to be in it. I have to be part of it. I am kind of the example that this stuff is played out on. And once I'd kind of made that decision, I was able to kind of um, take some steps to kind of make myself better at it. Um, and it was always a fine line because I wanted I wanted to fail in the work mm. so I needed to be part of the cycle of failure as well but I also knew there were things I needed to do in terms of performance and they were things like um, I spent some time uh, with um, an actor uh, so that I would learn how to be a method actor myself, which Harry H. Corbett was. Um, I spoke to Harry H. Corbett's daughter at length about his methods, and she was brilliant. She was so kind of open and kind about 
you know, how he worked and all, you know, and, and the, like, tips that I could kind of pick up on for, for kind of performing as him. Um, I spent time with Galton and Simpson, which was a bonkers day, um, but was brilliant. Um, and I was able to really drill down into the scripts with them and kind of think about how they put the characters together. Um, so I, did, I had a, a, I was able to kind of lay some kind of foundations. Then once I'd kind of thought, well, okay, that's that's the work I'm gonna I'm gonna pursue. That I was able to kind of really um, put in place some things that would help me kind of achieve it. Really, um, when you got your first icon show, did he just show that one video that he really loved? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things he appreciated is he invited me in and he said, okay, let's have a look around the space. And I immediately went for the tower room. Yeah, everyone wants the tower room. And the reason for that is that he, he, he was, I think he was expecting me to say, oh yeah, I want, want, a, want, a, I want a huge space. And I just went to the tower room and he said, what is it about the tower room? And I said, it's claustrophobic. I said, for the, it will really work with this film and and he was kind of in agreement and it, and it did it really I, I saw a number of people leave quite disturbed and quite upset and I thought this is great because the whole thing about this is this is um, a superficial form of comedy mm. and it, I'm getting under the skin of it and I'm showing I'm showing a side of this comedy which is uncomfortable, mm. and that's great that, that it's having that you, effect. You've stripped away that veneer that seems palatable to a young child, yeah. And actually, it's quite dark matter, yeah. And 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 that uh, kind of showing if you if you kind of think about comedy as a as a skin, and the, and the top of the skin we all know and we're all mm. familiar with, and we think we think we've seen it lots of times. We know what skin looks like, and what. I guess I was trying to do with the work was kind of show the underside at the same time so this kind of simultaneous mm. I'm aware of the reference it's a comedy reference but actually I'm looking at something quite visceral and quite yeah. uncomfortable it's that familiarity but something yeah. that's kind of penetrating and yeah. disturbing yeah and so I kind of that's that's what I kind of spent six years doing and um was really lucky along the way because um, I lived as Hancock for a week in Bognor and I did um, I played both likely lads um, and got commissioned to do that um, by Wolverhampton Art Gallery and then towards fourth year of my PhD so I was quite I was in the stage then where I'd got quite a body of work and I kind of knew what I was doing um, and New Art Gallery Warsaw um, the curator contacted me and she said um, would you like to come and be the artist in residence here and that was great because I managed to get a sabbatical from work as well so Perfect. I worked at uh, Warsaw Art Gallery for three months every day beautiful studio uh, great people to be around. Everyone, um, from the cleaner to the director, would knock on the studio door and say, "What are you doing today? Yeah. What are you interested in?" And it, it was just really good. They 
bought some of the work for their collection and I kind of just set myself actually because I had three months I thought well, actually I'm going to visit each of these figures for a month mm. and just see what I, I get to um, and I made um, I, I found some interesting things out I, my usual working method at that time was to spend uh, a period of time kind of getting into the character and then looking at ways of rupturing it. Mm. So to try to try and be good at it so I could be a, a bad at it, really, mm. or kind of pick the moments to kind of expose my kind of flaws with it. Um, and so I, I kind of... I, I made two Hancock films. Um, so they took... They took a month to produce, and there's lots and lots of takes, and I would spend a whole day just going through the same mm. thing, and then I would review it, and then I'd get it in the sketchbook, and then I'd do it again. And so, and those two films, the two Hancock films, they're quite short, they're about three minutes each, those. Um, and then when it came to the step toe, I really kind of surprised myself. I had an idea um, and I thought I'll try this and I went through the same process that I thought I was quite careful about how I planned it I, I thought about um, how I would kind of arrange the studio and what I needed in that space and then the day of filming I um, it was great because Warsaw uh, closed on a Monday but I could go in Okay. So there was nobody there. So silence. I, I, it was silence. I didn't have to worry about interference. So mm. that was my main kind of filming day. Um, but I uh, did this as nearly seven minutes. And by the end of it, I, I'm going to sound like a corny actor now. At the end of it, I was emotionally drained. Mm. And I've never experienced that before. Well, I was going to say, like, you, you keep talking about this kind of almost embodiment of a different person living at Hancock for a week. It's kind of, how did that affect you psychologically? Was it difficult to find you again afterwards? Well, more so in the latest work, but no, not too bad actually in that respect. I think what I kind of wasn't prepared for, so one of the acting, uh, or one of the method acting techniques is a memory recall. So if you want to appear particularly distressed or on the verge of becoming distressed, um, you, you perform as the, the character, but in your head you're reliving a mm. moment of trauma from your own personal history. And so that's that going on. Yeah, that's kind of what, what's kind of happening in your head to influence what's happening mm. on the screen. Um, and I, I did this kind of seven minute thing and I've never felt like it before. I was just kind of, I was quite upset. Mm. And um, I remember talking to the curator the next day and I said, I've got a film to show you. I said, I don't know yet. I, I only did one take of it. And I was still kind of quite kind of surprised. And I said, I, I don't know what it was yesterday. I just couldn't get through anymore. I just, I did, I did one thinking I'll do this for the rest of the day. Just felt like I couldn't, like I didn't want to do it. And um, she watched it and was quite kind of moved by it. And she just said, You don't need to do any more. That is it. Mm. That 
you're not going to get it any better than that. That is what you need. Um, so it was a one-take thing, and it, it kind of felt uncomfortable just because I'm used to doing days of takes. I was going to say, because it seems to have been a bit of a theme from what you were saying, that you almost associate your making of work with an element of pain in terms yeah. of the research and things. And if you do it by fluke, you don't seem to believe in it. If you've pained over it for months and years, then it's validated it. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you, might, you might be right. Yeah. It feels like it doesn't feel real. Yeah. For and, you, and, and, if you and, haven't got all the background. And, and I guess also I'm, I'm still kind of quite surprised if people are interested yeah. in it and moved by it. And so I was really lucky because... Um, then the icon reappeared and they said we, we've got this idea um, to do an off-site project in Fletcher's Walk which is currently being demolished um, it was an old um, 60s shopping mall just by where the new library is now just opposite from the new library it's kind of you went down oh yeah I know that one um, and they said we've got a shop we'd like to screen artist films and um, we just wondered what you were up to because we thought you could be the first one. Um, so I kind of showed them the step toe one and they just went, yeah, that's it, we want that. So that spent three months being shown um, in Fletcher's Walk, um, which was great, mm-hmm. you know, it was really exciting. And, um, yeah, I, and as I say, the Light Lads was commissioned for Wolverhampton. So I kind of... I kind of then that kind of brings me up to the where we were with the the About Town Commission, yeah. which was a piece about Tommy Cooper. Um, and I kind of ba- I I kind of got some notes in my sketchbook about one day I might make a piece of work. Um, I saw, as millions did, I saw Tommy Cooper die live on television, mm-hmm. and I kind of thought to myself, oh that might one day be an interesting thing to explore. Um, And so, yeah, that combined with um, a sequence from a Buster Keaton film, I'd kind of made some rough notes about it and and ended up just going, Tommy Cooper, um, hats. And they're like, yeah, we'll go for that. And, And that all came together very quickly. So I kind of... After the Tommy Cooper piece, I kind of thought I need to um, I need to break the mm. cycle here, and that needs to be some work I did, and that's okay. Um, I was asked um, to be artist in residence at the Birmingham Midland Institute, um, which I'm just completing now, just finishing off now um, and that was quite initially quite an odd experience and I'm always very lucky to, to work with people who, who have been supportive I had an initial meeting with, with the people at, at BMI and, and they were very clear that they wanted um, the artists in residence to respond in some way to the building, to the site, um, and f- for the BMI to be kind of writ large in the work. 
and that seems to be a condition of quite a lot of yeah. artists and residence programs a lot of them seem to be respond to yeah local i pitched an idea about comedy and pain and rightly so they kind of turned to me and said what's that got to do with the bmi rightly so and it was just that it's kind of that was the work that i was kind of starting to think about uh through slapstick i kind of thought um what about physical pain i've done emotional pain let's explore this idea of laughing at physical pain as 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 a a kind of way forward and still at that stage i didn't know whether it would work or not i was kind of just starting to kind of make make kind of suggestions Mm. as to where I might go and um, I didn't have an answer because I were right it didn't have anything to do with the BMI and the programme manager who had asked me to to do it was really supportive because she just kind of fought my corner and she just said no 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 we've invited you here we've invited him here he's going to come and do this and we will trust that he will find a way and it's not fair to question him like that at this stage. It's just it's an initial idea. So she was fantastic in that respect. It was a year-long residency, which was the longest residency I'd ever had. Um, and probably for six months of it, I was still not doing anything related to the PMI <laughs> at all. Um and you know, I'd um, I was kind of painfully aware of that, um, but I kind of it, it 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 got there in the end. I mean, what what I was kind of exploring was the, the first thing I wanted to do was get rid of the known characters. Um, so I wanted to create a character. I mean, I used that term. I wanted to get rid of the known characters. I wanted my character to be simultaneously known and unknown mm. so it wasn't we we don't know who this person is but we're familiar with the way he dresses the way he performs the content of his act so it, it was somewhere around there and I thought that I actually have to create my own character that changes yeah. the parameters in which I'm working that I'm going to have to work a lot harder uh, with that so that was kind of one of the first steps, and then moving into physical pain was was kind of the next, um, because I spent a long time learning how to fall properly, like mm. a slapstick performer, fully aware that I was going to have to unlearn some of that for the work yeah. to to do what I needed it to do. So I did. Um, I did a live performance for Flatpak Festival and during Flatpak Festival two of my films were screened. Um, the icon reappeared um, and the director had been asked to um, put together a show, curate a show in Bahrain. And he just said, oh, I'm aware you're doing some work at the BMI. What are you on at the moment? So I showed him a piece of work that I'd made. I'd kind of developed this idea that there would be, the figure would appear on stage, 
and the figure would appear backstage and it would be two distinct bodies of work okay. yeah. relating to the two. So I showed him one of the backstage films and he just said, yeah, can I have that for the show in Bahrain? So again, just so lucky, <laughs> really. Just really good timing. Um, so I had films shown at Flatpak as part of it, but up until that point still hadn't kind of thought how does this fit in with the BMI um, so I mean the the live performance and one of the performance films the figure appears on stage and he is obviously traumatised by being exposed alone on the stage so he tries to escape the stage um, but runs into the concrete pillar at the side of the stage and falls over uh, as you would in a slapstick tumble um, but the, the kind of difference is and something that I, is a motif of a lot of the films I've made is repetition so he runs into the concrete pillar for over and over again over and over again and there is a, a point with the audience where they realise that actually he's not falling mm properly anymore he's actually hurting himself mm. here and he is staggering around because he is in pain and we're sitting here and watching it and there's this kind of relationship a shift yeah and also about responsibility and it's this he's he spends time looking at the audience before each each run at the pillar and there is this connection where he he's it's, it's accusatory, he's kind of saying I'm going to keep doing this because you're going to keep watching mm. and that, that that is the relationship we have and it's, it mm. gets quite uncomfortable and when I did the live one um, I did have one member of the audience walk out which was great Yeah, was, you know, that was great I mean live performance is a lot of difference to it which I learned <laughs> so when I made the film, I, I ran at that concrete pillar for a day. Yeah. And didn't cause myself any serious pain. I had a little graze there, that was about it. And it was really important I did that because I was able to prove to the BMI that health and safety wise this yeah. was okay and that I wasn't, wasn't going to kind of do anything serious. When it came to the live performance, adrenaline kicked in and. When you've got people in the front row who are audibly gasping, you kind of want to do I it. I kind of thought, if you think that one was bad, <laughs> I'm going to go for it this time. And so it kind of built in a way that perhaps the the filmed version didn't. Do you see that's where your work's going to go? No, actually, no. I prefer the performance films. Yeah, and I I don't know whether it's because it's a you can just revisit it and it, it it just feels that at this at this moment the work that I've made the, the films as a body of evidence work and I kind of quite like the myth of live performance so what I tried to weave into this was the fact that he did actually do it live mm. a few times and audience members left and so I think there's kind of room for live performance. Um, but it was really interesting. So I kind of, kind of came off stage 
and everybody who's kind of in the know, everybody who worked at the BMI, oh, Tony, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Why wouldn't I be okay? That didn't look good. And I was going, no, that's fine. I think I spent about an hour with them, kind of chatting, had a cup of tea. The programme manager was quite um, strict in, she said, I don't want you to appear to the audience after. She said, you need to disappear. And she said, so I, I want the audience gone before you kind of do anything. And I was kind of saying, oh, I'd quite like to kind of talk to them and see what they thought. And they said, that's fine. We'll film, we'll talk to them and we'll film their responses. But I don't want you to be seen. Great. So I spent about an hour. And uh, yeah, everything was fine. And then I sat on the train and I kind of thought, all right, that's that then. And um, the pain in my leg, and I just suddenly thought, "Wow, that's the adrenaline had just gone off." Yeah, and I was going, oh, "That's quite sharp pain." And I thought to myself, "I'd be all right." So I assuming kind of, that you walked to the train station, yeah, and yeah, got fine. on the train, and I kind of yeah limped into the house afterwards, and um, yeah, there was quite a lot of damage. Um, my uh, <gasps> yeah, <laughs> so that was quite an interesting thing, yeah. Quite, a kind of lesson, I quite like the fact that it did cause that much damage, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was kind of it kind of felt good that I'd kind of done all of this, um, but then I needed to place him at the BMI and the BMI have uh, a library with a number of archive archives and lots of archive material and I just kind of thought I need to give this guy a name and actually just place him historically Mm. and place him as almost fictionalise him in a kind of Tommy Cooper way that then you were coming in as an artist and saying, "Look, I playing found, that I, guy." Yeah, I found this guy. And, That's one way of getting around yeah. it. <laughs> and um, so he and the idea was that he would have performed at the BMI. Yeah. And that uh, you know this this guy's been written out of history, um, and so was able then to kind of do things like, you know, there's only one in the archive. There's only one record of an interview he did. He talks about Keaton and Chaplin being great, but they don't they don't do it for real. Mm. They they fall so that they don't hurt themselves. Well, do you know what? That's not a real laugh, then I do it for real. And so this kind of idea that he's been written out of history and is this undiscovered mythical figure is kind of where I mm. I kind of placed him and that solves the problem of well, what's this got to do with the BMR? Actually, you was found in your archive. <laughs> you know, that's that's where it comes from. So, so yeah, I kind of been working on that, and um, yeah, it's been quite exciting. I've kind of reached the end of the road with it now, I think, and um, I've got to kind of start to decide what to do with him. Um, I kind of is that the Duke? This is Duke Duke yeah. Kinsey, yeah, and he. Um, yeah, performed at the BMI. Um, there's also, I mean, this is where it gets complicated. You asked me the question about did I ever lose myself in it? There's some quite funny things that happened during this. 
But I actually decided he needed a character to hide behind. Okay, yeah. And so there's a, there's a clown that he used to perform as, um, which is in here somewhere. So I started to do, do, do there you go, I yeah. started to develop his kind of alter ego. And so it kind so of it's built becoming a little bit like Inception and layers and yeah, layers and layers. Yeah, and all those kind of things. And it, it was quite, kind of useful to do. There's, there's an odd thing. So I did a blog for both the residencies that I've done. I did a blog. And initially, the first maybe blog post I did was about me being in the studio. I'm artist in residence. Yeah. what I'm thinking about. Did some sketchbook work today. Those kind of things. And then it quickly turned around to third person so dis- describing this figure who walks into this space he's meant to do some work at the BMI but there is this other figure that's starting to take over him and he doesn't quite understand and it started because I um, in the studio I got my kettle and a mug and just as I was kind of developing this this figure I walked into the studio and um, I'd got, there was another mug there. Obviously, one of the cleaners had just put a mug in there, but yeah. I kind of thought, well, that's, that's not my mug. What's that mug doing there? Along the one wall, I've got all the costumes that I use, and so I kind of turned to the wall, and he was kind of there, really, and so I just kind of said, you've got your own mug now. Yeah. And as soon as I kind of spoke to him out loud he started to become this Almost real yeah mm-hmm. and so the blog started to go down this road of losing sight of who you are because mm-hmm. when you're in this space there's there's another figure there there's another identity there because it just reminds me of that um new netflix documentary i don't know if you've seen it jim and andy no, and no, it's about Jim Carrey playing Andy, oh, Kaufman, Andy Kaufman, yeah, yeah, and yeah. about how during the filming process he refused to come out of character. Yeah, and obviously Andy Kaufman was a really obnoxious sounds bad, but a difficult character yeah, to be with, yeah. and he took it to the extreme. Yeah. And apparently, people would be suing him for his behaviour. And yeah, no, I did read a book about the Man on the Moon film, and yeah, so yeah, so it kind of became about mm. that. Well, actually, I'm I'm Duke. Yeah. During this period, and starting to kind of, and what you know, one of the films is about this kind of misrecognition and trying to kind of get the makeup off, but it won't come off. And around this time, I had this odd experience on the train. So, um, on my train to and from the studio, um, this woman just I'm I'm very English in these situations, so this woman just sat staring at me as if she kind of recognised me and I didn't recognise her and it just became awkward but I'd gone past the point of being able to say sorry do you know so she was just sitting there staring at me and I was thinking you know this is a bit strange but it started to happen on a regular basis and so I'd kind of be sitting on the carriage minding my own business and then look up and she'd kind of be there staring at me and then of course people I was telling this and writing in the blog they're going that's not true you've made that up and I was going no she's real honestly (laughs) and the weirdest thing that happened was I took some students um, to Liverpool 
um, for the day and didn't get back to about half ten on the night. And I'd been used to seeing this person staring at me. Um, and the times I went to the studio. So I kind of got on the train half ten at night, knackered, kind of sat down, put my headphones and looked up and she was just there opposite me and I was thinking, hang on, 10.30 at night, yeah. what's going on? Just a coincidence. But I still didn't feel like I could say, sorry, you seem to stare at me every time I get off the train. Yeah. And then while she was kind of staring at me, this guy got on who I didn't know and he went, how are you? You're right. I haven't seen you for ages. And I was kind of sitting there going, <laughs> so I ended up having this conversation with this guy the woman opposite me was listening because I was thinking she's trying to get information about yeah. me to kind of confirm if I'm who she thinks I am. And that all kind of fed into this idea that, well, actually, I don't know who I am anymore because yeah. I just am a collection of these characters. But I think that, that in itself is a really kind of interesting concept to play with because it's you're talking about the idea of self and then pretend to be someone else but then the self itself is a construct yeah and you are a makeup of your experiences so you wouldn't be who you are if you hadn't watched those sitcoms and now you're pretending to be the sitcoms and then yeah it all is all layers and it doesn't mean that that new version is any less you than the you that's now here yeah absolutely and i kind of think that's that's quite a good summary of where the work is. Mm. In in terms of identity, that's kind of where the work is, really. Um, so what's next? Well, yeah. So I have been doing some work on that, actually. Um, and it kind of links... I think it is going to be live performance, actually. You asked me earlier mm. if I was going to do live performance, and I said no. Um, <laughs> and now you've changed your mind. So... Um, yeah, I made one film, and it was uh, an idea, and I ended up showing it to somebody who went, that's the work, so that thing happened again. Um, so basically, I, um, I'm i interested in doing some stand-up, Okay. but I, I do it very badly. Yeah. So I tell her. Make people very uncomfortable. Yeah, so I tell a Ken Dodd joke over and over again. Um, but I do it, I, I take the joke apart and reconfigure it in such a way that you know the joke, but you also realise the meaning's shifting slightly mm. and this is uncomfortable. And my kind of desperation to get a laugh. It's saying, yeah. let me tell it you again because I don't think you've got it. You're not it. getting it. <laughs> what it is, and so I keep going through it and it alters slightly every time till it just becomes a collection of kind of words. And, um, yeah, it's quite yeah. uncomfortable. But I'd like to do that live. To, yeah. Uh, and is to, the dream situation that everyone leaves? Uh, hopefully. No, I'd like somebody... I'd, I'd like to have things thrown at me and booed at and okay. I think the audience it'd be good if the audience really maybe reacted. you should just leave some things dotted around the audience like that are different levels of pain <laughs> so you could have like balloons and then yeah. rotten tomatoes and then <laughs> and the scale of it and it's like how bad can you get before they throw well it's interesting brick? because um, 
I am friends with um, quite a successful stand-up comedian, and when I started thinking about this work, I thought I'll go to him and I'll talk to him. Is that Ian? This. Ian, yeah, the, the one you gave me the book on. Yeah, I love that. Book. Yeah, and he he's he's great. Um, but I went. I, I just went to see. I just went to catch up with him when it, we try and catch up when he he does a show in Birmingham. And I kind of talked to him about this, and I said, oh, "I've just made this." It's just an idea, but I really want to share it to you. And he's, he kind of said, well, what's the idea? And I talked him through it, and he went, I'm not watching that. <laughs> and it, it was so interesting, because I said, well, no, I'd really like your thoughts Info. on it in terms of the performance of it. You know, and it, I said, I've really... I had this kind of vision that he'd go, oh, I'll show you how to be a, a stand-up so that you can then deconstruct it. And he went, oh, I can't do that. I can't watch that. And he said... Um, I imagine it's his worst nightmare. He said it had happened to him once. And he said it is the worst feeling you can possibly imagine. And he said, you, he said, you can't do it. And I said, no, 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 I want to do it. And uh, he said something like, uh, you're either the bravest or the stupidest person I've ever met. And he said, you can't do it. And I said, yeah, but I guess I can't do it deliberately if I'm a stand-up comedian but I'm not and mm. I said that kind of gives me license to do it because my expectation isn't yeah that I get, you know, and that kind of protects you somewhat but it was really interesting to get his kind mm. of response to it and he just wouldn't watch it he was just like no, I'm not, not watching that no and he said oh, I couldn't but then you kind of know that you want something yeah hopefully yeah so I kind of think that's where it will go next. Um, I've got some initial... Uh, a bit. So, yeah. So that was, that was some of the like, light stuff that there was. Oh, yeah. But, uh, and that was the, the common people still. But, um, so how important are sketchbooks to what you do? Really important, actually. I um, They're like another person to me. Mm. I ask them questions. I throw out ideas and just kind of see what comes back, really. And this is your dialogue. Yeah, and it, it's just the way I work and... It, it, it works really well for me and I mean that that moment I talked to you earlier about where I was kind of like right the sketchbooks aren't working for me at the moment I'm just mm. going to see see what I can do with the camera I, I still ended up going back to the sketchbook because it's just the, it's just the way that I work things out because mm. um, they're still very visual yeah I think that's important for me I kind of need to see how things are developing and and how things are working. So you'll see kind of from from kind of here mm. things shift subtly to here, mm. and it, it it's just about working those things out really. And I need it visually to see that. But I mean, I do uh, at the same time I do write a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's interesting. These have changed. The way I work in sketchbooks, they look similar. Um, 
But I mean, he, uh, I just, um, David Bowie comes up in here so much. And it's because I started the residency just around the time that David Bowie passed away. Mm. Um, and just was listening to a lot of David Bowie in the I'm studio. I'm surprised music doesn't come up in your work more. Yeah. It, it has in here. Because when I mean, you were saying about um, the sitcom and someone pointed it out to you, yeah, like I've got you on Instagram and records <laughs> and music seems to be the blood that goes through your veins. Yeah, I, it, it does, and um, and it always has actually. And on on the wall through there, um, that is the cassette in the city cassette. Um, my mum took me to Smith's in Sutton when I was five. Mm. My mum used to have to work late and I think I'd sat in the car for a couple of hours waiting for her to finish work and she'd got to go into Sutton to do some, some shopping and she said, oh look, you know, you've been really good today. You, you can just pick one of these cassettes and I just immediately drawn towards this album by the jam and... Um, it's a lifelong kind of obsession really Um, so yeah I have occasionally thought about music coming Mm. into the work and it might yeah you know I mean in the sketchbooks as I say you know uh, Duke the, the character of Duke Kinsey I was listening to Station to Station on repeat so the thin white Duke mm and Duke just seemed to be a period name that mm. would fit nicely. And so that that's kind of where that came from. But even, um, you know, who can I be now? Yeah. So there seemed to be something in the background music that I would just pick a lyric out and go, uh, actually, who can I be now? Yeah, mm. that's quite an interesting thing. Mm. You know, and, and that started to be something that... Almost when I was stuck with the dialogue, I was kind of like, this song I'm listening to now, what are the words? And I'd just kind of write those words down. Yeah. And somehow I'd go, okay, that feeds somewhere. Because your sketchbooks, from an outsider's perspective, seem still quite organised in ideas. So do you, I don't know if you're like me, that you kind of flit around a bit. Do you feel like, well, that goes in that sketchbook because that's, character based and this is a historical based and this is no I'm not that organised and I think if you read you you'd see mm, it does dot around place with it and I until mean, it that, distills into what you want it to be yeah and then you get really really focused periods where it's just it's, it's all about that thing mm. and it just uh, until I work that out it you know it kind of has to yeah, it has to go that way, I think. I, and one of the things I've kind of found, which is slightly odd, is that I do tend to finish sketchbooks these days. Yeah, I find that difficult. <laughs> They're and always abandoned. Whereas this one, so that was one of the Hancock films. Yeah. And then it kind of, there's one of the Likely Lads films. So that to me seems completely disorganised. Mm. But I kind of, maybe settled it in my own mind because I thought well it's it's still the one body of work 
but then it goes into Tommy Cooper. It might be because you've got a house style. Yeah. It got, kind of goes into Com Tommy Cooper then, and that was such a quick piece of work. Mm. And then this is kind of this the germs of the, the stand-up. This feels like a disorganised... Yeah, this looks like a beginning of an idea. Yeah. And that looks like it's the fine-tuning. Yeah, and that's that's probably right. So this is the first sketchbook of the the kind of slapstick pain stuff. So there's lots of yeah. kind of working around things mm. before it becomes a kind of more distilled. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I have been accused of doing sketchbooks that are meant to be visually. Yeah, I think they're, they're meant to be seen. And for me, that's kind of fine. Mm. But they're first and foremost At all. for the work. Mm. And if they're not seen, that's fine. Yeah, you don't have to see them to understand the work. But you could see them and get a bit more. Possibly, yeah. I just think, I don't know, I, I think um, they're useful. They're useful for me. Did you keep sketchbooks when you did your photography course? Yeah. You've always said sketchbooks. Yeah. They're pretty bad. But, um, <laughs> I did do them, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this has been the constant, even though the, the medium's changed and how you express it changes, how you've got the ideas and... I think it's because I've never trusted myself. I, I, I remember studying with someone who used to say, waste of time, mm. sketchbooks. Absolute waste of time. Don't know why anybody would do them. Don't, and I would go, well, look, you know, it means I can put my research in, I can think about it. It's going, that all happens up here with me. Don't yeah. need any of that. It's a waste of time. And I kind of just feel, I don't know, a bit jealous of that really mm. I don't trust I don't trust myself to do that well I think in a way although you talk about it as a dialogue this is your pain because when you do do a video and it's the first take and it goes well and it has great applause you can go yeah, but yeah yeah that it's not this flippant thing that there is a lot behind it even though you don't need it and you may not ever need to show it mm. for you I think you need to justify it with the sketchbook and I was exactly the same. Mm. All throughout my degree, I used to keep hundreds of sketchbooks. I went through a phase where I did like one sketchbook a month um, when I was kind of slightly mad with yeah. ideas. But that's why I was interested with like the development and how you've changed so much from textiles through to photography yeah. through to performance. But the sketchbook's still there. I stay constant, actually. I think... And, and actually, it was the programme manager at the BMI because she'd seen my previous sketchbooks. And when I was showing her these, because we used to meet regularly so that she'd kind of say, well, where are you at now? Mm. What are you doing? And I would always just go, right, okay, well, I'm do doing this. And she was the first person who said, actually, your sketchbooks have changed a little mm. bit in terms of the way you're using them. Um, and she said they're much... There's, there's much more kind of intuitive responses going on or that are, are apparent. And she also said, and there's also this kind of bringing together of disparate things. Mm. Whereas she kind of said the stuff you did before was very focused, right? A bit more logical. Yeah. 
and she's going you're now kind of opening up to other things influencing and I, that's kind of fine as well yeah. you know that's quite interesting I mean I do I am getting to the stage now where I'm kind of thinking I might need to make a decision about whether I carry on kind of performing and producing performance work or whether I kind of completely challenge myself to go actually no do you know what I'm going to go and do some printmaking now or I'm going to do I don't know I think that that's the exciting part of it though because I think that you've had these ideas and it's almost that the ideas are the work and then you just choose your medium to do it and I think again there's a kind of element of discomfort in what you do so I think you're actually starting to feel a bit comfortable doing yeah. video work so you're kind of like I could do that but I wouldn't get the same out of it so I need to do something um, yeah I think it needs it needs to hurt a bit yeah to make sense and it needs to be a bit it needs to be difficult otherwise mm. it's kind of not worth doing anymore maybe you know I, it, I mean there's kind of a there was a, a bit of a joke about the step toe work so I was explaining to somebody when I first started doing the step toe stuff I said well you know decided I'm going to appear as step toe and they actually said what the old one and I obviously went cheeky sod which mean the old one like you know and um, I remember saying to one of my supervisors about that recounting that and I said uh, yeah so what I've decided to do is just uh, keep doing step toe stuff for the rest of my life and I said so that I eventually just become the old step toe and she she just went oh my god I can't think how painful that to do that and so as soon as she said that I thought Right. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> as soon as I'm as soon as I'm looking old enough, which probably isn't that far away, um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna do the old the old step toe. Yeah. And I think it'd make a really nice piece next to me as a younger version. So that might be something. <laughs> that, future, that's in the pipeline. You know, yeah. So I think we're kind of rounding up. So I think maybe the best way to finish it is what advice would you give to yourself? If you could have gone back to that 20-year-old starting out great bar kid, what would you, whether you'd do it differently or whether you, what would you say to them? I don't know if I'd do anything differently, to be honest. Mm. I'd probably tell myself to be less angry at certain points, just because that's a bit embarrassing looking back on now, but you've got to be, got to have a certain amount of, anger I suppose to drive you on I don't know if I do anything differently but I don't know whether that says something about the age I am now that there was a time when I desperately wanted to show at big galleries and um, I did have a, a terrible and failed meeting at Tate Britain and it was a really horrible experience to mm. be made aware that you are that far away and I remember being a bit down about that and thinking, oh, it's never going to happen and what's the point in doing it and all that. And that's just gone now. I'm not that bothered about that. I get something out of making the work. I like people to see the work. But I'm not kind of chasing something that may or may not be there. Yeah. You know, so I just let it happen. 
and see where it takes you really you know and uh, it's taking you far enough well I don't know I think I think being creative like a lot of other things that people do in life it's kind of under your skin and it's in your blood and just let it happen just you know don't try and ignore that yeah, yeah, I think ignoring it's almost the worst thing you can do. You've got to go with the flow, and I think that's what I've liked out of this conversation and getting to know you a bit more is how much you have over the years gone with the flow, and if it needs to go that way, and if it follow your nose, rather than being that kind of angry young man that's this is what I do and da da da. da. Yeah. Uh, I think, and I've done a kind of similar thing where you you get rid of that, and it's quite freeing because if you've got such a cemented idea of what is and isn't art what is and is isn't creative you're only pigeonholing yourself no one else cares yeah <laughs> so yeah. the yeah. easiest thing you can do is liberate yourself that just go with the flow yeah see where your ideas go explore it in whatever way it feels natural and, and enjoy it for that you know see where it takes you and sometimes it'll take you to places you're not really that interested in but it's okay just mm. turn around and go in another direction then you know it's yeah, no, I, I, I still, I still enjoy doing it. I still, I still kind of feel productive. So yeah. you know, just keep doing it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Keeping Curious with Dean Kelland. I thought it was a thoroughly interesting chat, and there wasn't much I could edit out of it. So I hope you enjoyed it and stuck till the end. Um, I won't keep you much longer, but just to let you know that the Facebook group. Uh, the Curious is open um, if you want to join in I think it would be great to kind of get some discussion around some of the points raised in this episode around whether you take risk in your artwork whether you've ever put yourself into a different medium um, like Dean talked about and also whether you have felt like an imposter in certain situations within kind of the art world and how you've dealt with that situation Um, I'd love to keep that conversation going so Join us in the Facebook group The Curious and I'll speak to you soon. Take care and keep curious.